This is Design Driven, the podcast about using design thinking to build great products in lasting companies. Whether you're running a startup or trying something new inside a Fortune 1000, the tools, methods, and insights we talk about will help you create things people love. And now, your host, Jay Cornelius. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Design Driven. I'm excited today because we've got uh, one of our colleagues, Max Fay, on the on the podcast. Uh, Max is a, a PhD in cognitive psychology. He leads our, our research division, and we've got some interesting conversations that have just been happening kind of in sidebars around client meetings, and uh, we thought we'd, we'd record one and share it with you. So today, we're going to be talking about cognitive load. I think it's interesting when we can expose some of the way that we think to people in a broader audience. So I'm excited to do some of that today. So I guess let's get started. What is cognitive load? It sounds kind of sciencey. Uh, what, what is it and why should we care? Sure. Yeah. Cognitive load is a scientific term um, that explo- that explains what at the end of the day is, is a pretty basic concept. And that is that everything that we encounter in our everyday lives takes up some amount of resources in our brain. Um, And those things add up in an additive or sometimes multiplicative way, right? So remembering your grocery list, um, uh, the conversation that you just had with your friend, the assignments that you need to do for work, each and every single one of these things, as well as pretty much everything else that we experience in our life, all place some sort of pressure on on uh, on our thoughts and our ability to, to think. Um, and that's essentially what cognitive load is, is kind of a measurement of um, how much those things are impacting us in the, in the moment. Yeah. So it's kind of like, uh, it's pretty easy for people to think about having um, you know, back pain or uh, they go to the gym and there's only so much their muscles can take. And our brains are kind of the same way. And the cognitive load is like, how much force are you putting on your brain to try to complete some task or think about something or remember something or whatever. So it's how, how, uh, how much energy does it take out of your brain to do that thing? Absolutely. And then, you know, anytime that you have that cognitive load and are consuming that energy, uh, it's going to place downstream impacts um, on your other thoughts and behaviors. Just like you were saying, if you go to the gym and work out your arms, um, it's going to be harder for you to go and lift that box at home. Same yep. thing can be said for cognitive load. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. Everyone uh, who's been to the gym on leg day knows what a pain it is to get up the stairs after leg day. So that's kind of the the idea here is that increasing cognitive load uh, makes it more difficult to do other tasks later, or maybe makes it pretty difficult to do that task right then. Absolutely. Yeah. So when we're thinking about you know, apps and websites and all the things that we use on screens, all the digital products that are out there. Why should we be concerned with cognitive load? Why is that something that we even need to be thinking about? So what it's a it's a multifaceted issue. First and foremost, we need to be concerned about cognitive load because at the end of the day, like I said, everything that we do uh, induces or causes cognitive load in an individual or a person. So for that reason, any app, any website, any product that you produce is going to uh, induce some amount of cognitive load on your user. Um, and why that's important for people to consider that is, is because we don't use apps or products in a vacuum, right? We use them in the context of all of the other behaviors and things that are causing cognitive load on us at that given moment as well. So we need to be cognizant of it when we create an app or a product because we want to 
mitigate it as much as possible, right? You want your app to be as as not cognitively taxing as possible because uh, you know that people are going to be coming into the situation with a certain amount of of inherent cognitive load to begin with. Yeah, so it's kind of like I guess we've all had that that situation where you open an app or or you go to a website and it's just hard to figure out. It's like where is the thing that I'm looking for, and it forces you to really to really focus and to think about uh, how to complete that task, whatever the thing is that you went there to do. Where's the button? Where's the thing where I type in my name? Where's the whatever the thing is that I need to touch or interact with to to move to the next step? And the more difficult those things are to recognize and use, the more difficult the entire experience becomes, which has apparent and obvious adverse impacts on whether or not we like using that thing. Yeah, 100 percent. Um yeah, cognitive load definitely impacts how we're going to view <laughs> any app or 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 the 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 positive or neg- negative aspects of it. So you have to keep it in, in mind or else um it'll come back and, and bite you. Yeah. So um didn't you wasn't your thesis or or didn't you do dissertation on the effects of cognitive load and somebody's what was it their likelihood or their or their desire or their their happiness with performing tasks what was it exactly yeah so i did my dissertation on the impacts of cognitive load on planning behavior and then we broke that down into whether or not people are planning for something that they enjoy doing versus something that they don't enjoy doing and how mm. cognitive load impacts our likelihood to not only plan for it, um, but then actually execute that plan. Right, right. Um, so what were some of the findings that you that came out of that? So the findings were that, and this should probably come as no surprise to anybody, um, that as cognitive load increases, people are increasingly less likely to do and plan for the thing um, that that they're that they're planning for. Um, but one of the kind of other key takeaways that was interesting was that um, so you know, just to give a little bit more context, right? We had people that were planning for either uh, a, a big work assignment, which isn't inherently negative, but people don't tend to, you know, chomp at the bit to to do a, a work assignment or a presentation, um, and then they were also planning for a vacation. So what we found is is that when people were s- severely or heavily cognitively loaded, um, they didn't feel more negative about the work assignment that stayed constant. Right? It didn't matter whether or not they were low or high in cognitive load. The work assignment was just kind of always like a five out of ten. Like I got to do it. I'm not crazy about it. What we found though was is that whereas people were you know extremely excited about planning for their trip to Bermuda um, under low cognitive load, when you put them under high cognitive load, suddenly they feel negatively about it. Um, in part because, not to get too far into the weeds here, one of the things that cognitive load does is it causes us to think concretely about stuff. Um, and think about the finite steps that need to be completed to do that thing. And what we found was that when people were thinking of planning for that vacation under cognitive load, all they could think about was, man, I have to go book the flights. I have to figure out where my hotel is going to be. I have to figure yeah. out the logistics of getting to and from the airport, so on yeah. and so forth. Yeah. And that made them feel really negatively about it. Yeah. And I know I've experienced that just uh, booking a flight or trying to find a hotel for you know a certain in a certain area or a certain distance from something 
that matches the same dates, that has all the criteria that I'm looking for. Like, you know, those are uh, quite difficult tasks to perform, uh, mostly because m most people don't perform them regularly, so we don't really know what to expect. There's very little consistency. If we're talking about from uh, like booking a hotel, for example, or, or booking a flight. If you're comparison shopping on uh, one of the online travel agents like uh, uh, um, Expedia or Orbitz or something, the processes are similar-ish, but quite different. And then if you go and look at Delta or American or, or any of the major carriers, their processes are still similar-ish, but quite different. And so there's very little there for someone to latch onto to remember what that process is like if they don't do that very often. So that ends up being a high cognitive load experience. Absolutely. And, you know, and and to loop back to one of our previous conversation or, or earlier in our conversation today, that's exactly why Delta or American or Expedia needs to consider um, how they can present information on their web page in a way that reduces that cognitive load as much as possible, because it is a difficult and complex task. And there are differences from one website to the next. Yeah. So that could be the differentiating factor between why somebody does business with you over somebody else is because it was easier for them. And it was easier for them because it was less cognitively taxing. That, yeah, yeah, exactly. So speaking of tasks, um, you mentioned task segmentation effect. What what is that? It's is it about um, perception of time or effort or dig into that a little bit? Yeah, sure. So it's actually this really interesting psychological finding which interacts with cognitive load, and I'll explain how. Uh, you just got to hang on for a second. It's that the task segmenta segmentation effect is is that if I ask you to, um, uh, the example that I that I often give is if I ask you to write a, a thirty page paper, right? and I ask you to tell me how long that 30-page paper is going to take you, you're going to give me uh, a, a, a certain amount of time. We'll just say 10 hours. If I then ask you, though, to break down that large 30-page paper into the individual subsections or tasks that need to be completed to get to that end goal, and then assign an amount of time that each one of those separate tasks will take, what we reliably find in research is that the sum of all of these segments or the components is greater than the amount of time that we assign to the task as a whole. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So how this relates to cognitive load is like I said earlier, um, when you are cognitively loaded, we tend to think of things in a more concrete way, which causes us to break up big tasks into their individual subcomponents. Um, as opposed to a more abstract way where you think about things more holistically, right? Um, so that's 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 what the task segmentation effect is and kind of how it relates obviously with cognitive load is, is that cognitive load causes us to segment tasks and therefore actually be a little bit more accurate about predicting how long they're going to take us. Yeah, and isn't it also true that generally people will underestimate the time it will take and the time and effort it will take to complete a task that they look forward to doing and overestimate the amount of time and effort it will take to complete a task they don't look forward to doing. Yeah, absolutely. Um, that's a, uh, one of those little quirks of being a human being um, is that um, when, when we feel positively about something, um, we, we tend to assume that it will take less time. Um, and then obviously that, that has no impact on whether, how much time it will take, but um, that, that is definitely something that happens. 
Yeah, totally. So when thinking about task segmentation, um, if we if we look at it and say, oh, it's going to take 20 minutes to do that, but then we break down each step and we in the aggregate, it ends up being 27 minutes or, or, or 30 minutes. Uh, when are, are people more likely to just give up and, and just quit the task? Is it once they've started, before they've started? Like when do people just give up when they just when they figured out that something is too difficult or time consuming? By far and away, people are most likely to quit before they even get started, um, which, you know, wraps into a variety of kind of anecdotal evidence that we all have. Uh, part of the reason why so many of us are procrastinators is because the hardest thing to do is, is get started on something. Right. Um, and so, yeah, um, we're most likely to quit when we're under heavy cognitive load and we're most likely to quit or not do something um, by by not even getting started on it. Um, it. It's it's pretty common that once somebody starts doing a task, you can kind of get into a flow state sometimes, um, mm -hmm. and then you just kind of get it over with. So, uh, yeah. Yeah, so that is kind of a, a psychological scientific explanation for things like uh, rage clicking and rage quitting. And you see people, or, um, and you, everyone's done it, I know I've done it, where you're in the middle of doing something and you're like, Ugh, I just can't do this right now. And you just close the tab and you're like, I'm going to come back to this later. And, yeah. then, you come, and then you never come back to it. <laughs> yeah. And of course, something else that gets people too is, is when we have that expectation of how long something is going to take. Um, and so you have that expectation and then, you know, you assume it's going to be seven steps and you finish with the seventh step and it suddenly prompts you with another massive page of information that needs to get filled out. And then you're going to quit there too, right? You're going to be like, man, I, I was prepared to do 30 minutes. I can't, I can't do another 15. Yeah. Yeah. So what are some ways, um, that we can work to prevent cognitive load, to, to avoid, um, people falling into the, in those situations in the first place? So there's a variety of kind of key things that you can look at here. One of them is taking into account how much information we can kind of attend to in our short-term memory. That's that's kind of like right in front of our eyes. So um, short-term memory is said to be governed by kind of the seven plus or minus two rule. What that means is that we can pay attention to seven items with a you know, plus or minus two from mm -hmm. one individual to the next. So that's one of the things that you can do to help mitigate people's cognitive load is make sure that you're never presenting more than seven items or realistically, those items can be clusters, right? I'm not talking about seven letters or seven numbers. I'm talking about maybe seven graphics or seven drop-down menus or questions on a page and make sure that you segment it for the user, right? Instead of having a survey that's 300 questions long on one scrollable page, have it be 700 questions broken down into pages which each have seven questions on them, right? It's one thing that you can do to help mitigate cognitive load. Something else that you can do is cognitive load is very modality specific. What I mean by that is, is that two stimuli or, or things in our environment that are producing uh, like a visual stimulus that compounds more than something that's visual and something that's auditory and something that I'm smelling, right? So being multimodal, right? If you're a phone app, having haptic feedback, um, having tones play to let the, the, the user know that they've completed a task or, or that they've received a new notification or something like that, 
these mm -hmm. are ways in which we can help to mitigate cognitive load um, as well. So this is like um, the little um, sound that you hear when you send an email or um, the little beep that you get um, when you um, use a credit card to pay for something in a store. Like I think Visa is a good example here where um, there's that sensory branding project or a sensory branding initiative that they did um, where you not only get the visual feedback that the transaction was successful, but you get a little chime that um, is Visa branded. You, you hear it only for Visa um, and that also communicates that the payment was successful, the transaction was successful. So now you've got two indications that the thing is done. So how else um, might we, I'm kind of asking this generally for everybody listening, how else might we incorporate multi, um, multiple ways of communicating various things in a process to make sure that someone knows where they are, the current status, and knows what happens next? Uh, so it's an interesting thing to think about as we uh, start to design uh, complex apps and systems that are helping people accomplish complex tasks. Yeah, 100%. You know, one thing that this doesn't really um, inform decision making in terms of products for the consumer, but it's a great representation of um, how to scaffold and support people when it comes to cognitive load is in the aviation industry. Um, the aviation industry is perhaps one of the best applications of um, the cognitive load research literature in the sort of ways in which pilots are presented information in a cockpit, right? Yeah. They have so many things that they need to pay attention to and their job is extremely high stress and, and very meaningful, right? There's hundreds and hundreds of people on board. Um, there, there is no room for error, right? And it's a great representation of how information is provided to them multimodally. Um, information when it's provided to pilots, for example, is also segmented just perfectly for how uh, short-term memory works, like I was talking about, how pilots communicate with air traffic control. They'll tell them to take, you know, like the like the Zulu route to, you know, heading 040, right? Zulu is exactly four letters. It's easy to remember. Um, so we can take a lot of lessons from the aviation industry and try to understand ways in which they support pilots and take those lessons and apply them to product um, and, and more kind of consumer uh, facing uh, questions. Yeah, and that goes back to some of the you know, fundamental concepts behind experience design about sequencing things and chunking things, breaking large tasks down into smaller tasks that are easier to complete and show progress. So all of those things um, are, are all based kind of in this concept of reducing cognitive load. So things are, um, easier to do and feel more intuitive. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So what does making people mindful, what does that mean? If we talk about making things mindful. Yeah, so that's kind of, um, so what it means to be mindful um, is mindfulness as a concept is being present in the moment. So um, I think we can all relate with the fact that so many aspects of the, kind of our modern day existence are constantly tugging at us, right? We're constantly worried about this and thinking about that. And that has an impact on, on your ability to be um, appreciative or pay attention to what's going on uh, right in front of your eyes. And that's exactly what mindfulness is, is trying to detach from all of those distractors, all of those thoughts that you're having and 
focusing on whatever the activity is that you're doing right now, whether or not that's mm -hmm. watching a video or looking at a tree or playing video games, uh, making sure that you're 100% present in that moment. Mm -hmm. And this is why it can be so frustrating on news sites where you're trying to read an article, but there's pop-up advertising or there's some some motion graphic over here that keeps pulling your attention away when you're trying to trying to read. The, one of the 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 worst offenders is recipe websites. You know, you go to get a recipe for whatever it is you want to make lasagna, let's say. And first, they have to tell you a life story about why grandma's lasagna is important to them and all this stuff before you actually get to the ingredients and, and the methods for making it, uh, which was driven by the idea that uh, you had to have content on the page for Google to like you. And so they made up all this unnecessary stuff and forced you to get through that just to get to the content that was really necessary. Imagine if we had to do that, or, or imagine if that was the way that you went to buy shoes online. You go find some pair of shoes that you like, but you have to read six paragraphs of something about the shoes before you can actually get to the uh, the the part where you can pay for them. Like that doesn't make sense. Uh, so there's all of these things that are in the way of us accomplishing tasks, um, getting to the information that we want, or getting to the part of the app or website or whatever it is that we need to interact with to move forward and accomplish whatever task it is that we're looking for. So it's like all of those things need to be considered so we can get that stuff out of the way and help people get to the thing that they're trying to find or do the thing they're trying to do. Yeah, it's a complex alchemy where of, you know, I always think that there's so many things like I was talking about earlier that are external. You know, if you bring somebody, uh, if you're trying to get somebody to come to your website to look at your recipe for, you know, grandma's lasagna, they're already going to be bringing a variety of things that are floating around in their head, thoughts and emotions that are impacting their ability to be present with your website. That's right. The worst thing that you can do is exactly what you said there and have a whole bunch of extra exposition in front of what they came there looking for that further distracts them and further makes them annoyed or thinking about something that's not grandma's lasagna. That's right. So um, not only do we need to mitigate that, but we need to understand that we don't want to be the cause of it on our own website or our own product. You know, I find it helpful to think about um, the the app or web experience in um, a, a humanized and, per and physical environment context. Let's say, for example, that you need to go to the store to buy some new clothes or shoes or whatever. And the first thing that you do when you get to the store is somebody jumps in front of you and says, hey, sign up for our email list. Like, dude, I'm not even in the store yet. <laughs> I don't even know if you have the thing I'm looking for, but hey, sign up for our email list. Like it's this thing that just jumps up in, into your face. And then as you're walking down the aisle to where the style of shoes that you're looking for is, there's all these other people that are saying, hey, look at these pants. Oh, maybe you should look at this other stuff. Hey, did you see this, this thing that happened in the news today? And like, I'm trying to focus on finding these shoes, people. If we think about those experiences, the digital experiences in a physical context, it really helps us put all of these other non-related distractions and other information into context that we wouldn't do that to somebody in the real world. So why is it permissible to do it to somebody online? Why is it permissible to do that to somebody in an app? Yeah, I think that there's a lot of lessons that can be learned from, from I think that that's a really great thought exercise is, you know, imagining that the app or the thing that you're doing in the digital world 
is instead in person and trying to, you know, draw a direct parallel between the pop-up ads and all the extra information and the flashy this and the flashy that and whether or not somebody would be happy with that um, in the flesh in person. And they wouldn't be, like you were saying. So um, if they wouldn't be happy with it in person, why are we doing it on a website? Um, yeah. yeah. Well, you know, the marketing people will probably get mad at me for saying it, but, you know, that's that's just creating a bad user experience um, with the intent of creating customer retention, which those two things should cooperate with each other, not be on opposite sides of, of the experience. Yeah, you know, of course, that's always <laughs> that's always a difficult uh, uh, rope to, to tread there. Um, you know, there's a way, obviously, the advertisement needs needs to be there, um, but there's there's ways to fold it in uh, and make it more organic and more naturalistic. But um, it's yeah. always a struggle. Yeah, there there certainly are um, effective, efficient, and um, uh, non-distracting ways to incorporate advertising and other messaging into to nudge people's behavior in ways that um, benefit the business for sure. That stuff exists all over the world. Um, think about the the little point of purchase. You know, you're at the register and there's the bubblegum display. Well, why is it there? Well, because it's effective. It works. Is anybody annoyed by it? Eh, probably not. You know, they're picking up their magazines or grabbing a pack of gum or a candy bar or whatever, because that's convenient. We've placed that in a, in a location, a physical location in the store that is both convenient for the buyer and gives them a gentle nudge to buy something because they're there standing, waiting anyway. Well, let's just show them some merchandise. That's a lot different than having somebody walk around the store with a box of bubble gum and walk up to random people and say, hey, you should buy some bubble gum. So we really should be thinking about um, what is the way that we can create the experiences that need to be created so that uh, people can accomplish the task that they need to accomplish um, in a way that does not add cognitive load. Uh, but still might nudge them towards the behaviors that we know will benefit the business. It's all about trying to use some of these these best practices and best tips that are well substantiated by the research. Um, and and at the end of the day, the most important thing you can do is uh, segment and you know uh, chunk information as much as possible, and then have multimodal information if if at all possible as well. Because some of the most memorable uh, advertisements for me are when I'm engaging with, you know, maybe when I'm watching football or something um, and, and a particular type of uh, jingle comes on, right? Um, that's like, I'm immediately going to think Coca-Cola or something if I hear the Coca-Cola uh, jingle. And, and, you know, that's, an, that's a really easy way. It just almost subliminally there, right? Like as I'm watching right. football and I'm tuning in from the commercial break, I didn't care about all the commercials, but the second that that jingle plays, I immediately associate Coca-Cola with the fact that the football game's coming back on, and that's the most effective way. And it's a way that's kind of well substantiated by the research, so um, it's kind of right in my wheelhouse there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. Well, I think all of us can relate to, you know, the uh, the phone companies, the insurance companies. They all show you the logo and play their little sound at the end of the commercial. That multimodal um, input makes it more memorable. So the same thing, what I hear you saying is that the same thing is true for reducing cognitive load is by providing multimodal cues, it helps people understand what needs to happen next without having to think as hard as they otherwise might have to. 
Yeah, yeah. You know, some good examples of how that is used is whenever I think of like any sort of banking app or something like that. Any any sound or or even or or, or I've been traveling a lot recently and I get these these parking tickets for parking my my car at the at the airport and as i'm leaving you have to scan a qr code and when you scan that qr code it immediately gives you a tone which is simultaneous with it letting you know that it's recognized how much money you owe them right. um, that provides me instant assurance that it's scanned my my thing even though right. it's both visually presenting the information what i actually care about is the tone Yep. Um, and and me feeling anxious about whether or not it properly scanned my card is something that you don't want somebody to feel, and that increases my user experience by decreasing my cognitive load, and it's just overall a positive experience. Yep, and we we've been doing a lot of work recently with some of those um, you know digital slash physical experiences where somebody has to do something in the physical world, and then uh, they receive a prompt on a screen and we have to make sure that those two experiences stay very tightly coupled in that person's mind. And I, I think you've seen just in the testing that we've, we've been doing relatively recently um, is, is that audible cues, um, a little bit of motion, contrast in, in the visuals, all help people recognize the prompt, act on that prompt and continue through the process almost kind of instinctively. Uh, there's a certain amount of in, of intuitiveness there that uh, the multimodal piece brings that probably would not happen if it was just something happening on the screen or just something happening audibly. Yeah, of course, the issue you run into there is, is with any phone app or website or any digital piece of media, as much as being it being multimodal would be helpful, some people are just going to have their phone on silent or yeah. not have headphones in their computers. So it's kind of like the Swiss cheese method where you want right. to have that multimodal component, but you also want to have like, kind of like you said, some a visual thing that sticks out from the website to further confirm whatever button you clicks, you know, yep. event, one of those layers will will catch each individual subcase. A couple things that we can do uh, when we're thinking about creating things for the digital world uh, to reduce cognitive load is one, use, uh, recognizable patterns. Use patterns that people have seen before, so they don't have that, that, and they already understand how to use, so they don't have to think about how to use them in this context. Um, multimodal things that help cue them into where they are in the process and where to go next. Um, we talked about breaking things down into smaller tasks. So if you have a large, complex task, break it down into smaller tasks. Uh, what am I missing here? There's some other stuff that that people need to know about. Uh, you know, kind of to build on that, also make sure that even on the individual page itself, um, segment information into small blocks or clusters um, right. so that people can perceive it correctly. And, you know, just design your websites with the understanding that the website itself is creating cognitive load, but the most important piece is the individual differences piece in that every single person that's interacting with your website or your app is bringing their own proverbial baggage of cognitive load um, from that day, right? And some yeah. people are gonna have, yeah. are, some people are gonna have tons of available cognitive resources that day, and some people are gonna have next to zero, right? right. Um, right. And that you just have to consider that kind of stuff when it comes to segmenting um, and, you know, having all that multimodal stuff. And at the end of the day, the one thing that you'd love to do is, is make it uh, 
an app that really captures the person's attention so that they're very mindful of it. And they block out all those distractors that are causing them cognitive load, but that is much easier said than done. Right. And speaking of distractions, don't introduce your own distractions. They've got enough distractions. You know, everyone listening uh, has, probably has multiple tabs open in their browser. So it's very easy to switch to some other tab, especially when something in the little status bar starts blinking at you. It's very easy to be distracted by other things that aren't on the screen. It's very easy to um, just decide to do something else because the thing that you're doing right now became too difficult. So anything we can do to minimize those distractions, uh, make it easier for people to recognize what they need to do to do that thing, uh, all of those things are going to enhance the user experience. You know, one of the things that, uh, um, it's kind of a trick question, but I've asked this in the talks that I've given at conferences for years, is when we think about your typical app or website, what is the one interface element that everybody recognizes that is always present and that always works reliably on every website? And, you know, we've, I've heard a variety of answers, you know, buttons or the navigation. I've heard a variety of things over the years that I've been asking this question. Uh, but the answer is the closed tab button. It always works. It's always there. You know where it is. And if you get frustrated, it's super easy just to go up and close that tab or switch to another tab and postpone doing that work to another time or decide not to do it with, at all. So when we think about uh, creating these types of experiences, we have to remember that people have other things going on in their head. And the less we ask of them from a cognitive perspective, the more likely we are to keep them on task and for them to complete whatever it is that they came to that site or opened that app to do. And that's at the end of the day, that's what we want them to do. Uh, yeah. We don't want them to give up. Yep. So. Right. Right. Um, yeah. Don't give up, little tomato. Don't give up. <laughs> Just keep going. <laughs> You're do almost it. done. Yeah. All right, Max, this has been a fun conversation. Um, you know, if people want to reach out, you know, um, they can do it through through the website, ninelabs.com. They can find you there. They can also find you on LinkedIn. Anything else that you want to put out? Uh, if somebody wants to get in touch with you and pick your brain about cognitive load or other behavioral psych stuff? Uh, those are probably the best ways to reach me. I can't think of anywhere else. Uh where I exist on the internet. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Sounds good. Well, thanks for making time. And I'm sure I'm going to see you in another meeting just shortly after this. So uh, uh, fun conversation as always. And I look forward to the next one. Yeah, it was great. Thanks, Jay. That's it for today. Design Driven is brought to you by Nine Labs, guiding innovators and product teams through executing their vision. Find out how they can help improve your digital products at NineLabs.com. Have comments, questions, or an idea you'd like us to cover? Point your browser to designdriven.biz and click Contact Us at the top of your screen. We'd love to hear from you. Tell your friends and colleagues about the Design Driven Pod. Post on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, or send them an email and tell them to go to designdriven.biz or wherever they find their podcasts. Until next time, remember what Thomas Watson, founder of IBM, said, Good design is good business.